Welcome to Airwave. Airwave is a conversation hosted by me, Morgan Page, where music and technology converge to tell the stories behind the artists and the architects of creativity and technology. Radio is where I first discovered electronic music in the countryside of Vermont, and music and technology provided the path forward. Airwave is an exploration of how people make their art and how technology plays an essential role in the process. The show is largely conversational, but doesn't shy away from going deep and technical in the process. All right, welcome back to Airwave. This week, we've got a very special guest, one of the world's most famous ghost producers. It's Martin Vorwerk. He's here to share his tips. Uh, We go deep into the technical nitty gritty. That's a big thing about Airwave. I want to go deep into the details. We're not afraid to do that. So we're going to talk all about his favorite plugins, his work process, his essential tips for building your career as a music producer and DJ. We're talking about how he built the studio in Aruba, how he started the book series Tip of the Week, uh, his life as a ghost producer, and now uh, using his name, his real name once again. So excited to have him on the show. We get into a lot of valuable, useful information, and we go deep. So enjoy This Is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. So, Martin, uh, we're here talking remotely. You're in the Netherlands. You have the beach yep. with you. You have the the beach is upstairs. Is that right? Above that's the true. Studio? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I'm currently in my spaceship now, but upstairs I have a small beach. Yeah. So, what was it like? You you've built many studios over the years. Um, tell me a little bit about your time in Aruba and your time in the Netherlands and creating these creative spaces. Well, I think during the years I have been in seven different studios. Uh, I started out working uh, for a record company and they had a studio available for me as well. So that's actually where I started. Um, But later on when I left the record company, yeah, I wanted to build something, a nice space for myself with an office. so together with some 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 old friends and colleagues, we uh, we drew up uh, a couple of designs and uh, we we just built it. Nothing fancy in the beginning, just like pretty okay room with some panels on the wall. So I mean everything was was pretty basic in the beginning, but it was uh, a really cool uh, space to work in. So in Aruba, there's definitely some challenges. Uh, what did you run into building a studio there? Oof. Well, <laughs> well, what we actually did is uh, before I went to Aruba, like the construction workers, they they live in Holland as well. So they visit my studio and they made like an exact copy of that studio. So they already pre-built a couple of things like the walls and, and the windows and stuff. Uh, so they put that all into the container and then they ship it to Aruba to make things a little bit easier. Um, but little did they know that when they arrived in Aruba, they had to wait like, I don't know, two, three weeks before the container was like cleared by customs. 
So uh, they had some uh, some quality time on the beach <laughs> before yeah. they could start building uh, the studio. But yeah, there were a few difficulties there. It's like uh, it's really hot in Aruba, so things like like glue, for instance, that would not work, or like how do you call it Ad- adhesive on on tape or whatever. It's just not gonna work in higher higher temperatures. Uh, of course, you need to build like proper echo, air conditioning system to cool your studio. Um, and also, because I came from the Netherlands, everything was 220 volts and what is it, 50 hertz? Yeah. And in the, and in the United States, they have 110 volt on 60 hertz. Uh, and Aruba has, I don't know, what is it, 130 volts on 60 hertz so it was quite a a hassle to get everything converted so i had to switch a lot of breakers in the in all my gear and to make it work so yeah that was quite a challenge was there anything in designing these studios that um you wouldn't do again well those studios were actually real workplaces it was a copy of a studio i was already used to um so for me, it was easy in Aruba to get used to the sound because I was already working in a similar size space for the last, I don't know, uh, four or five years. I was I was pretty happy with it, but still there was like always problems in the low end. But that's also because of the size of the room. So it was not easy to uh, to to prevent that because there was not a, enough room to build like a bigger studio. Is there any gear you've bought where you're like, you thought you'd really need it and later on you decided, wow, this was totally an extra expense? No, not really. I always have a very light setup. Um, so, yeah, I, I use like my computer, my sound card, my monitor controller. I have a, um, uh, a MIDI keyboard in front of me and an Exercise TI and some analog gear. But, you know, a summing box uh, and a mastering limiter, but, you know, that's about it. And I had, like, the similar kind of stuff in Aruba. So, yeah, that, that always worked for me really well. And how do you integrate that with your workflow? Like, with see a lot of studios with a virus TI there, and I have one here, and I think it sounds amazing, and I never end up using it, even though I know it's an incredible piece of gear. Um, and I've dabbled a little in the summing stuff over the years. But tell me a little bit, just broad overview of... Um, integrating the summing into your setup, and I know you use the the Better Maker limiter, some outboard limiting. Uh, how does that work? Well, it's it's fairly easy. So I have two mono and three stereo. Um, so basically, I set up buses in my DAW. So, for instance, I have a mono bus for the kick, a mono bus for the bass, and then I have like one for beats, one for uh, since and one for the rest vocals and stuff and it's just it's just routing so i can uh direct directly route it out of my daw into the summing box and then it comes back in again so i already listened to the summed um some channels some channels and is that, that giving you a, uh, a different sound you can push things a little harder what does that do for you uh it, for me it opens up the mix a little bit more and it adds like like a 5% extra to your mix. 
plus the the one that I'm using here has some other features where I can uh, use like sort of parallel compressor and a harmonizer um, just to glue and saturate everything more together as well. Um, so I I wouldn't say it's like super necessary to have it in your studio. It's just a little bit extra on top of your mix. But the better maker limiter uh, that definitely makes a bigger change for me. I feel that I can push things a lot harder. I can clip a lot harder as well. So yeah, that's that's um, really cool stuff to use. And how does that work um, in, in the flow of things you've got? I mean, you have things that are summing and you're clipping, but I know you said in the past you like to push things a little harder so you're not reliant on a the final mastering chain as much as, as the buses beforehand. Are you you clipping stuff earlier in the mix on the buses or at what point are you doing that? Um, well, that, that definitely depends on which genre I am producing. So if it's a harder genre, then yes, I will be clipping a lot more. So my, my go-to workflow would be that none of my channels would go over like zero. Um, but I... I decrease the dynamic range a lot on every channel for the harder styles that is and then I ha then I can push it like uh, to the max in the end and so you're trying to pull out a little more information a little more emotion out of the information that's in there like pushing the voltage a little bit more are there any specific techniques in there in your books that you talk about where um, you know you talk about a lot of using distortion things like that are there any favorite methods of yours for bringing out more emotion out of the sound? When, when I make music, I want to have, especially when it's like in the harder genres, um, for the breaks, I want to bring in the emotion. So in that case, I would maybe automate the limiter so that we have more dynamic range in the, in the breaks. But the moment the track drops, it needs to be hard and in your face. So in that way, I care less about like emotion. It just needs to hit very hard. Yeah, and I guess it depends how you define emotion too. Where sometimes distortion provides the emotion, but sometimes more more dynamic range provides the emotion with an acoustic instrument. Because I think um, one of the biggest things I know people struggle with with their mixes is getting things to translate and making sure that this this harmonic information is equally powerful on different systems. And especially live, I mean, just the key of your song can totally change the impact of it. Like, as you know, mixing in C can often be tricky because the bass is either too high, too thin, or too low, where it's yeah. going to just not translate live. Yeah, so for, for, for pop music, I think that's not so much um, an issue because... Uh, it's more about the song itself but if you're making a club track I always try to be like between D sharp and G sharp somewhere in between so that means we have the lowest frequency would be I don't know 38 hertz and the highest would be I don't know 50, 52 something like that so you can make a really powerful low end and the moment you are making a club track in C. So we need to mix like 32 hertz, which will never translate over a club system. Right. So that's going to be a big issue. It's tough. And you just have to, I mean, transpose up, like at least 
that's the only trick I use is maybe you're using the kick in G, um, but you still have issues that the center of the key is so low uh, for the bass lines and things. It still creates a challenge. Yeah, I, I, I prefer not to, uh, like, like sometimes, like the other day I was working on a, like, side trance track, which was in A sharp, which is already pretty high. Wow. So you, you, you can never have, like, but you can have it, but it's more of a challenge. But like the really tight, super low end, which you expect in that type of genre. Um, so I prefer working in, in a lower key then. Sure. And when you're getting these songs together, um, how are you assembling your references and how are you, how are you keeping perspective on, on the mix? Uh, what do you mean by that? Like in terms of referencing other music or other tracks, uh, are you checking other tracks in the same key, similar loudness yeah. range, or do you have ones yeah. you just know always translate? No, no, I would like, because I produce in so many different genres, um, I need to know or switch my mindset a little bit towards that kind of mixing. Uh, so then I would take a reference track, which would be in the same key. And I usually take a, a mastered version, of course, which I take from Beatport and then pull it down minus two, minus three dBs or something. So uh, I have something to work with and something to reference with. And are you looking at um, just the overall feel of the mix? Or are you trying to hit a target like Luffs? I'm trying to hit an overall feel of the mix. Um, usually when I, I reference certain genres, I try to analyze how that type of genre is mixed. Is it very uh, centered, very mono? Is it very wide? What did it do with, with the beats? What did it do with like the pianos? Do they keep them really narrow? Did they keep them very, really wide? Uh, uh, also the vocal processing. Uh, I try to analyze as much as I can and then um, yeah, I already know sort of how I am going to mix it. Um, and are you using any software to, to check the mixes or are you just manually placing those reference tracks in your, in your DAW? I'm manually uh, placing those tracks in my DAW and then I, of course, I route them to a different bus so they would not interfere with my master chain. Right. And is it changing yeah. now? I mean, in terms of, there's always been the loudness war. I feel like it's persisted for club music because it has to be loud and that's part of the feel. But even as streaming has allowed people to mix with a little more breathing room, are you seeing the same uh, requests with artists and even with your own projects to mix as loud as possible? I actually don't get those requests, but I always deliver multiple masters. So one for the club, one for like uh, Spotify and radio. And sometimes one for social media stuff. Yeah, I feel like the, if you upload Instagram, it'll distort things a lot easier. Or you you really yeah, find exactly. out the reality of it, uh, which exactly. is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, depending again on the genre, uh, I measure in RMS. So let's say uh, I just released like a track with a hard style drop, uh, then I try to hit that at minus two and a half dB RMS, something wow. like that, but only on the on the drop part. Um, but if it would be for, for Spotify, I probably would take that drop down to minus six, minus seven RMS, something in that area. 
you know, it's funny when I've talked with, uh, I use Wired, Kevin at Wired Masters for STEM mastering. And yeah, I always yeah. say, you know, maybe we experiment this time and we do two mixes and I'll do one for the club and one for radio and streaming. And he will usually push back and say that, you know, it's just a different feel. I mean, I guess it depends if you're trying to do one mix at minus four luffs versus a minus 12, minus 14. But he says that it's, you just got to do one mix. And, you know, I've talked to, and Zed and Calvin Harris were saying the same thing, that they they were like obsessing on these details and getting into the weeds. Yeah. And then they ended up in the end just doing one mix, but maybe you have a little more breathing room. You're not squeezing out that last two dB. Exactly. Yeah. So in the yeah. end, that's what I do, but I just take down the the end limiter a little bit so that it isn't hitting that hard anymore. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, one thing I'm always curious about is stereo width and the compromises that you have to deal with, uh, with a wide mix versus a centered mix. And a lot of your tips in the books talk about uh, trying to achieve a balance. Um, so what's your philosophy on that? Because there's always going to be some compromise of things phasing out, things canceling. Are you just prioritizing certain elements? Well, what I like to do in the beginning of my mix is always start like worst case scenario. Uh, meaning uh, I, I pull out my um, smaller speakers, put everything in mono, and then I'm going to uh, put the volume down a lot, like very soft volume. And then I start building uh, my beats, my bass, my melodies, and finding the right samples. So then from that point on, I already know that it translates well in mono. Uh, then I start mixing all the elements a little bit more together. And then I put it back in stereo mode again. So um, that way you already start uh, from like with, with a good starting point in your mix. Right. Uh, but nowadays you have a lot of uh, plugins which not really, uh, how do you say, phase your signal a lot when you put it more wider. The imager from Isotope, for instance. I mean, that thing is great to make stuff more wider and create more room in your mix uh, without creating much problems with your face. Yeah, I feel like there's sometimes you get the cheat codes for a wider sound that's mono compatible. Like there's, uh, I was messing around with Phase Plant and there's a comb filter in there. If you put like, the comb filter, it usually makes things sound like shit, but I feel like in synthesis, it's great. Uh, obviously, in making serum patches, but in phase plant, you turn it on, it sounds huge, it sounds wide, you collapse to mono, and it sounds perfect. And there's yeah. no, almost no trade off. You might lose a little high end, depends what, where you set it, but have you found any other workarounds besides you know just building that foundation correctly? No, I try to build the foundation correctly. Uh, sometimes I also use uh, an imager right, off, right from the start. So I put it on the end bus already. And you know, and take it from there. Uh, and and if I do get like a lot of problems uh, with phasing, then I usually fix that with some mid side EQ. And you're taking out lows. You're, you're taking out unnecessary information from the mix, or or just rebalancing it. Rebalancing it. So if if I think there's too much uh, side information going on, then I take it away or carve it away to create space for other stuff um so my 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 center mix still stays really strong um also on the 
master channel, I usually do a low cut on like the, the side channel, a little boost on the sides at two, three, four K, and then I roll it off again at like 10, 12 K. That way it, you, you still keep a wide mix, but you place the, like the, the, the stereo information more in like the higher mids. Yeah. And when you're, you're thinking of how this is translating to the live environment, um, there's a lot of opinions that I hear from mixing engineers. They talk about, well, what does it matter about the side information if it's all going to be played back in mono, some to mono in a live setup? And then I've talked to some clubs that talk about how they are actually, some are wired in stereo and just the bass is some to mono. Um, is this stuff you think about with the process? Because you don't want things disappearing at a festival stage or a club. Uh, how does the live translation affect how you mix? Good question. I mean, <laughs> it sounds a little bit stupid, but if it sounds good here in the studio, I know it will translate well on over the festival speakers. I mean, you, you don't you don't want your whole mix to collapse when you press mono. Uh, if you still have a solid foundation, then you know it will translate well on a festival. Uh, so let's let's say you're kicking your bass already mono. Some of the beats. Uh, are also really centered. Um, let's say you have some big big room leads, for instance. Uh, what I usually do is I place one in the middle of my mix and the rest I put more stereo, more wider. So if you would be playing this on a mono system, you would still hear uh, the lead synth correctly. Sometimes you have synthesizers which has like which have like three oscillators which you can pan as well. So you can say I take oscillator one, put it in the middle, put more focus on that one, and then oscillator two on the left, oscillator three on the right, to create more of a stereo image. And that way, yeah, it will translate well on stereo and on mono systems as well. So you won't run into that problem of you detune. Uh, a highly voiced synth, a synth that has a ton of voices, and it won't disappear because you've created sort of a, an alternate reality, a parallel version of that synth lead. Yeah, of course I run into problems sometimes, but then, yeah, like I said, it's just trying to do it with mid-side or uh, doubling the channels and uh, setting them to mono and panning one a little bit to the left, one a little bit to the right, or... Things like if you have a mono signal, um, then send it out to um, like a, a, a delay on your uh, send bus. And then try to level those to be equally loud. And then again, pan one to the left, one to the right. Uh, that way you can create wider um, sounds as well, which stay um, good in mono. Right, and do you do anything where you're you're like maybe changing the the way the transient hits on the left side versus the right side? I, I remember like, uh, Flosterdamus was talking about that, where he would actually just slightly offset things, and they'll still sound great in mono, but he'll do like a different transient designer on each channel, or just do something to add this contrast. Do you do anything like that? No, no. Sometimes I would like delay one of the channels like four to ten milliseconds or something but just to create like a coarse type of feel and do you think like with with producers that are doing the, i think a lot of guys rely on like the haas effect and then maybe they pay for it later on where it sounds great and then boy as soon as you hit the mono knob it just sounds 
tinny and thin and small. Uh, do you try to just use those techniques sparingly? Um, I have used those in the past, but I'm always evolving and changing, and I'm not really using that anymore. There was this cool plugin called Sound Delay. I think it's from Voxengo or something, which has like a really cool house effect thing going on with the delays. Um, it works well, but doesn't translate good in mono. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm hardly ever using that again. I think Cashmere was saying he's Anymore. tried to wean himself off of the the house effect. Yeah. It seems like it, yeah. it matters, like we were talking about, just building a good foundation, like picking the right sounds to begin with. Absolutely, yeah. If you check like tracks from, like I was referencing to like Camel Fat or, uh, or Calvin Harris for that matter, if you listen to those mixes, you can, you can put your, uh, your DAW in mono and it would sound almost the same. It's like no phasing, nothing. It's like super tight. Uh, and then when you take it back to stereo, you hear that the reverb is coming up, the delays are coming up, vocals sound a little bit wider, and sometimes it uses like brass kind of things that create more whiteness in the track. But for the rest, it's like it's like it's almost 100% mono. It's crazy. Yeah, I feel like that with pop mixes, especially where you, you almost hear no difference and it sounds just as good in mono. And I guess everyone's chasing that as the holy grail as their, their audio goal, part of it at least. Um, yeah, so, I agree. So these days you're doing a lot of different projects. I mean, you're juggling um, the, the mixing work, the producing. Um, you have your own projects with, with using your own name now. Um, True. So you're, you're involved with, and you've always been deep into the creative process. Like, What's a typical day like for you? A typical day for me is just uh, go into the studio and, and make music. Uh, and depending on, on the client, uh, it's, yeah, it's a certain type of genre. So lately I've been doing uh, tech house, deep house, like future house, uh, like big room versus hard style kind of things, uh, side trance stuff, trance music. You know, all that kind of stuff. So what led to you wanting to use your, your own name more? I feel like you're much more out in the open now and more transparent about the process. And it's less um, less about NDAs and, and keeping things secretive, um, although I'm sure there are agreements in place. What, talk to me about that process of you're evolving from someone that was um, very much the secret producer. And when you Google ghost producer, your name comes up first. Um, I feel like the scene's changed now, but what, how did that work for you? And what, how did that bring you to where you are now? Well, first of all, I need to realize that when I started making music, I did everything under my own name, but that was like in the period from 2001 until 2008, 2009. Um, I put out a lot of stuff under my own name, but also a lot of aliases. I think I had like 15 or 20 different aliases in the past. But like back in 2009, people started approaching me for, hey, can you make a track for me? Blah, blah, blah. So that's how the whole co-producing, ghost-producing thing started for me. Um, but I still, I make a lot of music. Uh, sometimes I'm in the studio and I feel like making something different, something weird. And then I just put it out on my own name. You know, it's just just for fun. 
so yeah, I I still have like a lot of demos on my uh, on my computer, which I still want to release uh, at a certain point in time. And uh, in terms of secrecy with these projects, where you have to sign an NDA and you can't disclose who you're working with or who you're producing with, are those is that permanent? You can never talk about those projects. I I have never signed an NDA. Wow, so it's a handshake agreement. Yeah. And do you do you prefer doing these projects where your name is first and you're getting more of the credit? And I mean, that's always been the the sticking point. I feel like with some of the no, ghost I mean, production, getting like credits is more of a I don't know a, a DJ thing or something. I don't know. I I I don't really care about it. I guess. Yeah. So, but you just love the process. You love getting in there. I mean, the goal is. The thing is, I love making music. I don't like the music industry itself, but I love right. making music. So. Right. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it's just so much more fun to focus on the craft and the art. And yeah. I can't do negotiations. My blood just boils dealing with <laughs> oh, all, really? the, okay. all the middlemen. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it just helps to have a good team, but I can't stay on the process of negotiating and then feeling like, well, did I get screwed on this deal? Did I get a, you know, a bad writer's share of this? And it's always a tough debate, right? Like you've got to, yeah. in the end, yeah. you have to agree on splits and everybody wants more. Uh, I think it, it's refreshing to me though with a lot of new younger collaborators I'm working with. They're um, not as ego focused, you know, they're just hungry. They're excited to make music. They're excited to build a volume of work. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also the perfect breeding ground for, for people to make, take advantage of. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, something to be uh, cautious for. It's, it's something I try to teach people as well. It's like, make sure that you know what you're doing, you know? Yeah, it is hard because people want that opportunity. And uh, yeah. it's, that's been the record label model forever, right? Like, uh, people yeah. come in enthusiastic and naive and will take a subpar deal just to get into the industry. Yeah. Which yeah. is tough. It's tough because you have to start somewhere. And then I think everybody is. Uh, had one bad deal at least, or been dropped from a label, and and maybe yeah. wasn't expecting it to be to go that course. I mean, all the major yeah. label artists. I think almost every successful major label artist has been dropped once and gotten screwed once. But there's no excuse for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. So for me, as a producer, I always have a different point of view than an artist. Um, for an artist, it's important to be on certain labels. Uh, so you can get your your image out there. Uh, for me as a producer, it's that's less important. So for me, it's all, all just fun. Do you think it's changed now with Spinning getting bought by Warner Brothers and Armada being one of the last solely owned dance labels? Has that changed in terms of the best partners to work with? I mean, as much as you can talk about. I think more. It's more of the the streaming landscape has changed a lot. The labels, I mean, they're, they're like, for me, there are more marketing agencies. So they have all the tools in place to promote your music very well, but you have to pay for it. I sometimes make the, the comparison that if you put the song out yourself and you get 100,000 streams, you probably earn the same as you would getting a million streams with a bigger label. Yeah. Uh, but still people want to release with a bigger label because it's good for the name, it's good for whatever. And I think a lot of guys, don't they don't understand when starting out, I mean, even at any level, the major label wants you to have done the majority of the work first. 
Uh, it's pretty rare that they're going to come in. And even the projects that have been big successes that they claim are their babies that they groomed from the beginning are uh, usually were already hits before they signed them. Yeah. So it's a tough process. But, I mean, as the landscape has changed, does it change the way you're producing? I mean, now, before, I feel like with the, the EDM boom, it was all about getting the biggest sound live, and you've created some of the biggest anthems out there. Um, and then it seems like people went a little in the chain smokers direction. Things are going a little more underground house now, a little more bass focused. Um, does it change your philosophy and how to produce, or you just go in the studio and, and no, feel a vibe? No. It, it, it has never changed my whole philosophy. I mean, I, I always say um, like a good melody is timeless and you can produce that into any genre you like. I always say it's like every seven years we are back at the beginning where we started. Mm. Uh, so now everybody is diving into like more of the underground stuff. And then in the end, people will get bored from that and then they want to be like harder music again etc so then big room will be will be back or some f form of big room i mean that's just like uh that's the cycle of uh, of life so it's always cyclical yeah yeah and do you what do you think about as these platforms change and you know the most popular speaker in the country at least in the u.s right now i think is the amazon echo where it's I mean, first it was this headphone revolution uh, with the success of Beats, and then now it's turning into more speakers that are smart home speakers. Um, are you seeing new ways people are consuming the music? Does that, does that ever change the philosophy of how you produce in terms of uh, people aren't just listening on headphones, but now they're playing, now there's like an Amazon Echo that does Atmos that I just got in the mail. Um, yeah, I haven't, I, I don't reference with an Amazon speaker. I still do it like the old fashioned way. <laughs> But I think I don't change my philosophy on on this. But I I do see it with like like one of my proteges, uh, Mazare, Italian guy. He produces with with earbuds. And wow. That's, I'm just flabbergasted that he uses that. But he gets decent mixes with them, so I'm pretty sure that his mixes translate really well on laptops, on telephones. And probably an Amazon Echo speaker as well. I think Audion does that too. He does either uses the Bose or earbuds. I think just earbuds and yeah. everything in the mix. Yeah. He's very yeah. efficient. I mean, he takes a lot of older sounds and updates them, but to do the whole process without any speakers just blows my mind. Yeah, it's crazy. But in the end, it's what you're used to. But still, you need to hear like good low end. So yeah, that's gonna be tricky. But a lot of these guys, they make a decent mix and then they send it off for for mastering, just to be uh, <clears throat> to get it like one hundred percent perfect. Yeah, I think it's very hard to juggle everything. I mean, do you are you doing the final mastering all yourself as well, or or sticking to? Do you have one other person that's the one final check? Usually I do everything myself. When I lived in Aruba, I, 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 did, some, I did a few mixes with Kevin from Wired as well. Uh, but most of the time, mm, no, I do it myself. Yeah. Do you, to keep this consistency for your working, do you, do you ever use checklists or anything? Or you, you just have your references, maybe you're using templates in some way. How do you keep it so consistent so that you... No, so, so I, I cannot or I, I refuse to use templates. I think you would fall into old habits if you do that. Right. Uh, plus, 
your music might sound a little bit uh, too much the same, which would not be good in my case, <laughs> because I produce for a lot of different people. So I try to have a little bit of a different sound every time for different people. So I try to approach it from the start. So, and sometimes that's really tricky because if I have been working on a uh, like hardstyle track for a whole week and I finish that and then my next uh, production would be a tech house song then it usually takes uh, takes a minute to uh, adjust my brain and uh, get into that type of sound yeah I was gonna say how do you keep it authentic to each brand you're working with each artist has its own brand maybe it has its own feeling um, and there's even variety within their own sound but how do you yeah. keep that um mentally compartmentalized i'm i'm always trying to get like a clear view of what the artist wants I'm trying to get that expressed in in words first and then i'll try to create like a certain sound story around that and and take that as the lead for to make and to build the track and also in every track that i produce i always want to use like one slightly different technique which i haven't done before and uh, that could be some weird automation or just like a weird routing thing or just an effect that i've never used or try it on a send bus or create i don't know different kind of effects styles. Yeah, I always feel like that's a good way to try a new technique versus tinkering yeah. with a, a random session. Just use it in an active session uh, and then it's a better use of your time. And you'll probably get a better result from that because you've been in that session for so long. Yeah. Do they? So yeah. when, you're, when you're doing these projects and a request comes in, somebody wants to hire you to work on a track, are they giving you any sort of creative brief? Like you were saying, there's sort of a in words, you're trying to figure out what they're going for. Are they saying what they're looking for or are they giving you references of other songs that are made? Well, usually I, I, I ask them what they're looking for because I don't want to work on something and then later on they say, no, this is not what I meant. So I need to figure out what they want. Um, I've, I became pretty good at that during all these years. So then I can also uh, send reference tracks to them and say, hey, is this something you're looking for then? Is this type of genre? Or maybe we mix this genre with that genre. Let's try something different in that area, etc. Uh, so we talk about that. And then if we find a uh, common agreement in that, then I start uh, building the track. Great. And so with new songs you're hearing, I mean, as you're, you're, you're mentoring talent, you're bringing in new collaborators um, like Mazar, what are the most common mistakes you're seeing people make? Like what I find, think is very important is the final 10% in the track. And that is automating your effects. Uh, like when you have a buildup and that moment uh, that the drop comes, you don't still want to hear the reverb of, of the buildup, etc. So making everything really tight and clean, that's something like a lot of people tend to forget which I think is one of the most important things to do because that really takes your song to the next level. So it's like trimming the tails? Trimming the tails, exactly. Yeah, yeah, trimming the tails, cutting away uh, low ends, you know, like the basic stuff. So sometimes you don't need low end in the sound, so cut that away. Uh, a lot of people forget that. So in the end, they smack on 
a limiter and then all that low end sub information is 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 coming to the to the foreground how high do you go with the okay it's so easy to over high pass things and take the the foot and the foundation out of the sound do you have a, a i mean it depends on the sound obviously but uh, how much fat are you cutting out of that sound uh, on which sound i guess on any sound like, like is there do you have any benchmark where you go well i gotta high pass everything above you know at 80 hertz on no sounds. so so if i have a sound which which i know that doesn't need any low end like a hi-hat for instance then uh i usually look at the, the spectrograph on fat filter and then just cut it until the hi-hat begins but i usually cut it while playing everything else so then i see if it loses a lot of body or not and that's also the best way to to cut away low end. So while playing everything, uh, low cut it, and then see where you can hear the biggest difference, and then just turning it back a little bit more. And so what other issues do you see coming up? I mean, you see guys overusing OTT and things like that. I mean, a lot of that is the sonic sound people want, but are you seeing people just yeah. over-processing? What other problems? Well, usually the processing of the problems start when, when mastering, then everything becomes uh, noticeable. When you get the track to a certain loudness, then you see that the high end is one big mess, that all the frequencies above 15K are really like uh, hissing, especially when they're all compounded on each other. If they use like three different loops and a, and a cymbal, and then <coughs> in the end it will sound like, like very annoying. Right. Um, so you kill the movement, you kill your dynamic range in, in the high end. Um, so yeah, that's stuff uh, which I see a lot. And what I also see a lot is that people are using too much elements. So I always say less is more. Um, just like, for example, uh, Mazare, when he sends over like a, a project, then usually uh, you can just throw away like 60% because it's just adding nothing to the track it, that's all created in the excitement of the creativity <laughs> and then uh yeah in the end it's not adding anything so i think a good producer should know you know always mute a certain element in your track and see if you miss it or not if you don't miss it just throw it away it's just excessive baggage i, I feel like it's so hard where sometimes you'll mute these elements that you, if it's a very layered lead sound and it takes away something, but you know there's too much too much clutter. So maybe it, you have to start with a new sound. But there's sometimes there's that middle ground where there's you, there's the overlayered sound, and then you mute it and you miss it. But you've got to find a way to capture that energy and emotion in a mix. And maybe it's just a different synth sound overall. But um, it's too many. It feels like it's always too many leads playing the same note, and there's not enough contrast between the parts. Yeah, exactly. So that's a good tip as well. If you layer leads, then use some of the melodies, use them in like a half time, the other ones in double time. So you create a little bit of a different rhythm and they will work better with each other then. And you know, we talked earlier about detuned sounds, things like that. Um, do you try to layer it so some elements are, you have certain layers are the more detuned versions and some are the more like perfectly centered pitched versions? Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. And how do you exactly. how do you juggle it with distortion? I mean, obviously when you add distortion, it starts to create 
weird subharmonics. You've got to go back and filter that. Um, how are you using distortion in your workflow? Um, I use distortion to uh, decrease my dynamic range. So, so I sort of use it as a compressor. But I also use it to sculpt sounds. So sometimes I could take like a bass guitar and and distort the hell out of it so that becomes the the lead sound. Uh, I used to do that a lot with, with my favorite Quadraflus plugin from the old Cubase. So yeah, I usually use distortion to decrease dynamic range and to create certain sounds. And saturation is more of a glue thing for me. Do you have any other Desert Island plugins for, for distortion other than uh, Quadrafuzz? Because that's only in... Is it Cubase? Well, I yeah. use a lot. I, I'm a big fan of, of Camel Fat and Camel Crusher. Um, I use uh, Quadrafuzz because now somebody showed me a way to, to use it in Studio One. But also, I really like the Fab Filter Saturn. Uh, I usually take like uh, the six bands and then I just use it as an EQ just to push some stuff more into the mix, certain frequency bands into your mix. And are you doing less processing on the lows? Are you trying to do more upper mids and, and highs with distortion? Or do you, do you break it up like that in the spectrum? I would not do... The, also, again, depending on, on the genre, of course. But let's say if we're, we're doing like a, a house track or something, I would not use a lot of distortion in the, in the, in the low end, maybe in the low mids, just to create more... How do you say that? That is more translatable on like uh, smaller speakers. Mm-hmm. So either distortion or or saturation. And so, what other plugins are essential to your process? For me, what I always have is like two reverbs. One kind of a room reverb is to to place a sound in your in your mix environment, and then a whole a hall reverb to create like yeah big big halls at least one like ping pong delay uh glue compressor i love a lot yeah like i said saturn fab filter pro uh equalizers have you messed around with all these new ones like uh like soothe and Gullfoss, yeah. these more time soothe. based yeah i love soothe it it's it's like super easy to use you know, it's a real time saver for me. It's just to find all those resonances, which are normally cut out or use like a dynamic uh, EQ on, on those resonances. And now with uh, Soothe, it does it for me. So yeah, that's really easy. Are you using it on, on vocals, like DSing vocals or, or other parts? I use it on vocals, but sometimes on, on loops as well. Wow. Uh, anything that could sound like really harsh. If things are sounding like too boxy or or sibilant. Yeah. Yes, I'm always for the like the hiss kind of sound, this, that type of sounds. It's yeah, it's perfect for that. So with all this work you've done, you've done the productions. Have you done uh, sample packs? Any sample packs like with Splice you're going to work on? Um, I have talked to the guys about that, but um, no, I still haven't done that. So I'm I'm quite quite busy. So, uh, yeah, I haven't found uh, the time uh, for that. I think once you start the process, you, <laughs> you really have to commit to it. Like, it's a, at least a week, two-week minimum to make a decent pack. Oh, know, absolutely. Week, yeah, right? probably, probably a lot longer for me. And I, uh, I recently carved out a lot of time to finish my second book. So that was high on my priority list. 
what got you into writing all these tips down and, and creating the books? Well, I got so many messages on Facebook every time. Hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? I was like, shit, um, you know what? Every week I'm going to pick one of those questions and post an answer on Facebook. And that turned into like a four work tip of the week. And like after three years, people were like, hey, uh, is there any way you have all these tips bundled? Is there some place where I can read them again? I mean, you cannot scroll back to a Facebook timeline. So that gave me the idea to bundle all the tips into a book and, uh, and publish them. So yeah, that's how it, how it started. Yeah, I feel like it's people don't realize how much work it takes to assemble the tips. I mean, I've done it with my quick tips and Kashmir's done it. And it's it takes so much work, you realize why there aren't that many resources out there like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and so you collected them all initially and you kind of expanded and revised the ideas. Um, do you have any personal favorites in there? Pooh. Well, they are, they are all personal favorites. I mean, the most of them are based on personal experience. And of course, a lot of them I, I fact-checked afterwards because I don't want to put like wrong information in the book. Although when producing music, you know, you cannot, you can never actually go wrong because you're always trying to experiment, trying to find new ways of processing. But yeah, business tips or you know pitfalls, that kind of things. That's uh, sort of. It's not really fun to tell, but it's really educational to tell people, and a lot of people can relate to them as well. So, I mean, I think those things are really important as well. Yeah, I like that it encompasses more than just how to create a fat kick drum. And uh, that, to me, that's one of the issues with you know all these tutorials. There's so many great YouTube tutorials, but a lot of them don't aren't time stamped. You can't really see what information is going to be covered. A lot of them, a lot of them should have yeah. you know, show notes on them. But I like yeah. I like that you know your tips get to the point, and that was one goal yeah. of mine too with Quick Tips was let's let's get to it. Let's make something digestible, so it isn't you're not searching for something and then 30 minutes later you realize oh, shit that was a waste of time watching this video. Yeah. So I I also made videos of these tips, but just like one season, 25 videos. And also in, that, in those videos, it's straight to the point. Uh, this is what we're gonna do, and I'll just show you how, how I do it. Um, I don't like those tutorials where people are sitting there for an hour talking, and then five minutes, they tell you what you want to know. I like, uh, I like getting to the point fast and trying to teach people with a sense of humor as well. Uh, I think that's that's the best way. So that's how I do it. So where is it going next? You've got the second book is out now. Uh, you gonna do, are you yeah. doing videos for this as well? I have so much content to make a lot of more a lot more videos. But again, that's for me. That's very time consuming. So uh, I need to see where I fit all of this into my schedule. Um, but now I am working on getting the book in Spanish translated as well. And um, focus a little bit more on uh, like uh, Latin America as well. Are you getting a lot of requests from the fans? That they're asking for translations. Yeah, they're asking for translations. So yeah, I uh, can't tell you a lot about it yet. But um, I'm trying to team up with somebody who is familiar in uh, Latin America, and uh, we're gonna try and um, and do some stuff together based on forward tip of the week and some other stuff. 
And do you do, you've done some classes with Luca, um, like guest lectures, things like that. Are you doing more of those in the coming years? Are there any plans for that? No. Like, if I get asked, then I'll probably do it, but it's not, like, on the top of my list, so. There's only so much time in the day to prep yeah, for Yeah, there's only so much time in the day. I'm pretty busy doing, uh, you know, the, my productions, family life, and also working on Tip of the Week stuff. So, yeah, that's already uh, consuming a lot of my time. I do want to make like a lot of new videos, a lot of new video content. So that is on, on my list. But like doing like a lot of lectures or masterclasses, probably not at location, but I'm working on doing that in my, in my studio, either online or actually in my studio in the Netherlands. So you, are you doing private classes and mentorship yeah. now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm doing, well, for, already for a couple of years now, I'm doing one-on-one -on -one lessons online, uh, which, which are great to do, actually. Uh, it's really fun. You get people all over the world, so, you know, and they're all struggling with, with stuff, and you get to see their projects, and you get to tell them, you know, how to improve and how to get, get better in mixing and producing and, and trying to get your music out there on the, on the labels. How are you sharing your screens? What kind of software are you using? Uh, nowadays, I'm using uh, Yondo. So that lets you see into their sessions, and you can kind of see video of them as well. It's all, all these different sources integrated. Yeah, that's really cool stuff. Um, it also gives you the pop, um, possibility to do like webinars in your studio as well. So people can see my screen and they can hear everything coming out of my DAW. Nice. And there, are you doing it all? Obviously, you're doing it in headphones. You're not getting feedback from it, but it's so it's a yeah. very, very much an intimate session and you can get that feedback to them quickly. So you're not going back and forth on emails. It's a very immediate feedback. Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. immediate. Yeah. 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 Cool, for yeah. the one on one lessons, it's, it's like, it's direct. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's with, with guest lectures, it's so hard because I, I get so many requests to go and speak at schools, but usually they don't offer a payment and it takes a lot of time to prep for these things, but they will be like for-profit schools and they want free lectures to come in. I think it's important to give back to the community, but you know, that's one reason I did my tips too. It's, it scales better. Like you get so many questions about things and your flow with all the interviews you do that yeah. I prefer to have it all in one place and not repeat myself. You know, it's like, Oh, you can find it. It's all online. There's 800 tips here. Boom. Yeah. Um, True. And, and, what I think was was really weird in the beginning <clears throat> is that if you give a guest lecture, you have a lot of people in front of you and you just tell your story and they watch you, but you have no idea if they like your information or not. They're just like looking at you. Right. And then I did my, my thing and then afterwards we did like Q&A and then everybody was, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? And, and I found a Q&A is much more fun to do because you have so much more interaction. Yeah, it needs to be a conversation. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, yeah it is true. I think, you know, I, I did one, a master class with JBL and Harmon and you kind of do it and you get your applause at the end, but you don't know. It's really hard to read the room in terms of like, I don't think people are going to do standing ovations at a guest lecture. Uh, it's just not, it's not the, yeah. not the type of people that are there. They're exactly. more introverted yeah. studio people. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So what else is next? I mean, we're in this really weird time with, with EDM kind of going back into the, its own box a little bit. Um, 
you know, I think we had this crazy hockey stick exponential growth that happened. Um, you know, Vegas is really correcting now, especially with chaos closing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it's hard to be aware of these macro trends, but um, where do you think things are headed right now? I, I think nowadays the, the underground is coming back again. I see a, a big like tech house culture growing in the United States. I might even see that like converting with, with hip hop as well. You know, doing like crossover stuff, but still nowadays the I think the the continents are still a little bit separated on on what works or what not. I see in Asia they still play like the big room stuff that works really well. In the United States, like I said, it's like more I think tech house, bass house, and hip hop. And Europe is still very commercial, pretty happy music. Uh, and of course, hard style stuff. Yeah, I'm curious to see where it goes because I think the way people are consuming music is changing pretty differently now as obviously the subscription services are so cheap, but now we're seeing like Peloton, you know, these exercise bikes. Now I'm seeing a royalty statement from an exercise bike. Serious? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I mean, they're playing a ton of dance music on there and they actually got sued for not uh, accounting for that and now they are so now they're paying for it but I see it in okay. my BMI statement now I see yeah. oh they played body work 20 times in this class oh you don't see it by class but you see when it was played well that's a good way to detect trends yeah alright yeah you can you can start your your marketing in the in the gym yeah exactly <laughs> yeah I think it's the more ways people can discover it whether it's in a VR game like Beat Saber. I've done some projects with those guys. Um, yeah. It's hard to see what is moving the needle sometimes. I mean, you can see counts, but um, I think that these platforms have so much advantage by seeing all the numbers. It's kind of like Netflix seeing all the counts, all the play yeah. counts, and what's being skipped. Uh, when does viewership peak or dip? Uh, so maybe, maybe in my mind, I'm thinking that artists need to have a little more control over their platforms and I don't know if it means having building their own platforms or not. You know, we've done we've done some projects where have you heard of community, that service where people text the artist and they reply back and it's it's not a bot, it's really them. Yeah, yeah. I I see that around me. Yeah. I think it's such a powerful tool and you know we built our own version of it called Ringy, but it's you you text the artist and it can it'll funnel through a number. You know, it's not your personal number, obviously. It'd be crazy to give yeah. that out. But <laughs> you enable it, it goes through. I can text back or I can call a fan can call me directly and we can have a one on one conversation. It's really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I see like there are so many communities nowadays which all have their own like genre clothing merchandise thing going on i do think it's really important for an artist to create your own following your own channels it's i think it's better to have like your own youtube channel and putting your music out through through that than doing it via label but you know that's my producer point of view i always look at music as well to like how to make money with your music which for a DJ might not be that important because when they have like a big show or a big tour, they make like 20 times more money than with their music. So Yeah, it's scary when, when a platform collapses. You have this period of arbitrage where the platform is doesn't have a ton of noise or saturation um, in terms of competing sounds. And like when SoundCloud was really good or when yeah. Vine was good. I mean, SoundCloud hasn't collapsed, but it's definitely less 
effective. But I feel like you get yeah. this window with each platform. You have to snap it up while you can. Otherwise, you may lose all that user data. I mean, if you're not collecting phone numbers or email opt-ins, you're, you're basically throwing out your user data. Yeah, true. Which true. is scary. But I see it also with YouTube channels. Um, I think it's in the United States, it's the same. Where you see it in, in, in the Netherlands, a lot with hip-hop artists. When they when they put out a new song on their own YouTube channel, they get like three hundred thousand like views in one day or something, which is pretty big in, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. You know, and they they grow their own community. They do everything via their own channels. It works better for me, I guess. I mean, they make more money. They have more control on how they want to profile themselves to the fans. Uh, so yeah, I think that that is the future. It's hard because I've seen artists that blew up on spinning and then change labels, and then when they don't have that machine behind them, um, they they don't get the same YouTube views. And I don't know if that's just the media buys or the the investment that's being made by the label. Yeah, but again, you you pay you pay for the machine, right? You know? So as we all know, Facebook uses algorithms, YouTube uses algorithms, so. If you have a big channel which has 20 million subscribers, if you put out a video, that doesn't mean that all your 20 million subscribers will see that video. So you have to pay advertising money to present it to all those subscribers. And that's coming out of your own pocket. So, you know. It's all recoupable. It's all a bad bank loan in the end with the record labels. Yeah. With like a, like a way worse than a loan on a house. yeah Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see where it goes from now because i think my guess is what will happen is artists maybe they're not going to become multimillionaires, but your average joe will be able to make a sustainable living you know maybe they're making 50k a year doing what they love or 70k like making a livable wage on the music and and finding a way to do it without having to get stressed out with the tour and having to divide everything up with a huge team behind them um, it's yeah. more self-empowered, more sustainable. Yeah, there are so many platforms nowadays which make it easy for you to put out your own music. I do it myself as well. Sometimes I put out music via DistroKid. Uh, you know, you have places like Fiverr where you have can have people make a logo for you, make a cheap video clip. I once had this girl dancing in a bikini on the beach on one of my, my songs. Uh, you know, you, you pay them $20. So you, you can create like funny or interesting content with a low budget and still make it interesting for, for your followers. Yeah, especially with TikTok now. I mean, I think there's all these... Yeah. Maybe the future of it is you're breaking things down into more... Instead of hiring one big publicist that's $10,000 a month, you're hiring a thousand different publicists. The little people like TikTok influencers, uh, you know, Instagram creators, and maybe the secret sauce is just how you manage all of that and manage the complexity of it. Because it's going to get even more complex, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to be complex. And in the end, you would need a manager to handle all that kind of stuff for you. But it's good to... To, to dive in yourself and see how everything works and and what creates buzz and what doesn't. Yeah, it has to be measurable, it seems like. I'm always asking that question when we start a new project, like, is this going to move the needle? And do we even know what the needle is measuring? 
You know, yeah. that's that's yeah. always the challenge to me because uh, you can do a ton of press for a new release, and it's hard to know like people's uh, tastes change. Like maybe the you know blogs were so essential for blowing up tracks for a long time, and hype machine was what helped launch Chainsmokers really, and yeah. uh, they just built a volume of work with this platform at the right time, but then. The trend moves on, and it's off to another way, uh, another method. So, I don't know. I haven't fully embraced TikTok yet, but I got to get on that. Yeah, take a look at Thriller as well. Thriller, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a big one in the US. Yeah. What do you think about uh, like Cameo? Have you seen these services? People do the, they do like the shoutouts, and everyone sets their own price. Like celebrities set fifty bucks or five hundred bucks. I mean, yeah, that's the world we live in nowadays. <laughs> <so yeah. laughs> I mean, I can imagine you want to use that. I mean, it's. You need to reach like your target audience, you know, and and if that helps, that helps. I mean, I think, and that's yeah. the thing. Like, you've got to find that niche, and the niche I don't think is so small anymore. Now it's like the niche is mass, and if you don't hit the niche, uh, I feel like it's it's just almost impossible to hit that top tier radio level with music uh, and the amount of cost, right, to do a radio campaign, yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars, at least for the U.S. I don't know what it's like in Europe. Uh, it's more uh, tens of thousands, maybe. Yeah, it's depending just, on if it's like a really big song or not. But, yeah. yeah, it's it's just so many territories. We don't have that many radio stations in the Netherlands, so you hire like somebody who visits the radio stations. So it's probably like five stations or something, and a couple in Belgium. Well, as we wrap up, uh, looking forward, is there any new technology you're really excited about in the world of of music and entertainment in general? Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see where augmented reality will take us and I'm looking forward to doing a masterclass where people would be actually in my studio like in a virtual reality environment. I mean, those things are are coming closer now yeah. and becoming cheaper to uh, to do, so. Can you imagine a DAW in that? Yeah, so everybody can work in the same DAW. You know, you already have that kind of stuff and Studio 1 is also having more collaborative like splice kind of thing going on so yeah that's that's interesting to see uh, how that will evolve oh yeah, that's what i was going to ask you what what um you know now we're seeing splice do the exchange with top lines i don't know if it's public yet but they're <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> oops <laughs> but anyways top lines on splice are a thing regardless yeah well vengeance was already doing that or vandalism i don't know yeah yeah. Where it's sort of a new derivative work. I mean, is this the future of how people work? So I'm seeing so many young producers now um, kind of emerging out of nowhere. And I'll, I'll say, where's this? They'll be pitching me a song to work on as a collab. And I go, where's mm -hmm. this vocal from? And they go, oh, it's a royalty-free thing. And yeah. part of me loves that. Part of me, it, it scares me because we've run into some sample issues with having to clear real samples. But when it's yeah. royalty-free where is this headed? Like, where are we going uh, with this new collaborative workflow with this sort of almost faceless vocalist? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good way to create income for songwriters, you know? Uh, so I, I still believe it's a, it's a really good thing. I think it's for songwriters, it's a really hard struggle to make money. You write a lot of top lines, some get picked, you have to wait for a long time, still not making any money, and then something comes out, and then finally you're going to do your contracts, and then after a year and a half you, you receive some money, and now you are able to create a top line, record it, put it online, and then somebody can download it right away for some money. I mean, 
it's sort of the same thing as I do, but then more in a like smaller way. But I almost want to meet the vocalists sometimes, and it, it's hard to even get their contact information because they may not even be properly credited, uh, yeah. anonymized, maybe by their choice. You know, sometimes artists don't want to be featured on things, anyways, or in yeah. terms of songwriters and singers. But I almost want to go and find these singers and be like, hey, can you just let's take this amazing melody you have and get rid of these terrible lyrics and just kind of tweak these. You know, I get so many of these. I mean, I think you should be able to do that if you can yeah. find them. <laughs> like, yeah. That'll be a whole new service to be able to track yeah. them down. Now, oh, you got to pay more money now. But yeah, but I, almost as a way to discover new vocalists, but it, it's hard when you have that very static top, top line. It's like you don't have them in your studio. Uh, you can't coach them anymore. It's It's set in stone. Just like doing a remix, I guess, but yeah. part of me wants to be able to reach out and say, let's tweak these lines and let's let's kick the tires a little bit and make this stronger. Well, yeah, again, it's a way also for us to find new talent and to maybe grow them as well as an artist. What I also think is really cool, you have a lot of websites nowadays where you can just hire some guy to play your bassline guitar. So maybe you play the bassline on your synthesizer and you want to have like the actual bass guitar. So yeah, you just hire somebody and you pay him, I don't know, 50 bucks. And then he records it with his bass guitar and then you can use it in your track, which I think is really awesome. It's exciting because I think it, it can be harder if it's you're hiring somebody in Nashville, a session musician, and they want to be paid at scale. And, uh, you know, it, it can be tricky working around, but I think it's way more fluid to collaborate this way. If you get the result you want, you know, it's great. Yeah. So the industry is getting a lot more competitive. So you need to be much more creative to make money with your music. Uh, I think that's a good thing, but yeah, you need to stay on top of things. And that can be hard for some people. Yeah, and I think, you know, finding ways to make sure these releases come out and it's not the same top line, like three different versions. You know, we've we've already run into this with Armada where I'll do a song with a splice top line and that there's they already have it in their catalog. It's already come out <laughs> with like another a big name producer yeah. and an unknown producer yeah. and you have to figure out, okay, what do we do about this? Like do we still go ahead? Is it less special yeah. to have yeah. a, a canned vocal? I don't know yeah. what we call it, but they're almost like, it's almost like covers, like unintentional covers. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, you're, you're making, I mean, if it's in the same genre, I wouldn't do it. If it's completely different genre, then I would say, you know, this is the time we live in. So why not? Of course, people gonna, gonna say on YouTube, Hey, I know this vocal, but you know, it happens. I guess it's hard. It depends how you present it, right? If you you can't really push it as your big new vocal single to radio, you know, it can be cannon fodder for the clubs. But I think yeah. it is. It's harder. It'd be harder because you only get so many shots with the playlist gatekeepers and the radio pluggers. Uh, the, you know, if they're going to be like, I know this vocal, and it's not a cover of a different song. It's actually the same vocal. Then you might have some problems. Yeah. yeah. Or it may not be worth the money, but I think it is super valuable, though, for... Uh, there's a lot of really talented bedroom producers that don't have access to vocalists. They don't have that deal flow coming through a publisher uh, or other collaborators to have vocalists come into their studio. So that's yeah. always the question I get from people. Like, where can I find good yeah. vocalists? Um, and it's hard because you've got to build trust. And, you know, some vocalists want to get paid in advance up front before they even start writing, which is crazy to me. Yeah, uh, But... They've been burned in the past, so you can kind exactly. of see yeah. the deal history there. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I I can totally relate to that. I mean, I can. I mean, if you know it's a good singer-songwriter, then yeah. I mean, then it's obvious they only want to work with the right people. So if they want to be paid in advance, uh, I can imagine. Yeah, I can relate. Yeah. I had one singer who wanted like $5,000 for the vocals without me hearing it yet. Okay, that might be overdoing that. That's overdoing it. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said, maybe let me just check it. And she played it for me on earbuds. She wouldn't even send me the file. Uh, it turned into a great song, but <laughs> it's okay. like, but it was so funny. It was somebody uh, that's done a lot in dance music and uh, had some experiences with major labels and with um, voice competitions. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think people people can get too cagey, and it can it can almost suck the oxygen out of the room in a creative environment. If you're talking about money, it's that really tough balance of you don't want to start a session on a business note. But you do need to establish some some ground rules uh, if you don't have a manager or somebody setting the expectations, right? Absolutely. I always set the ex- expectations up front. I don't care. I just I I don't like dealing with stuff afterwards and then and then feeling cheated or something. It's like it's hard. And then and then people come out of the woodwork. I've always found that uh, you have two writers on a track. And maybe one did the melody and one did the lyrics, and sometimes pairs work like that. And then you find out there's three other writers you had no idea were involved with the production, so it can yeah. split up even further. Yeah, <laughs> it's like that's how the pop records get to nine writers. Yeah, that's true. But if you're not doing a pop record, it's it's kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah, and if you figure this out afterwards, yeah, that's a, that's that's a, that's not good. So it's easier to be in a session and say, okay, hey guys, we're all together here. Uh, we'll split it up like this. Everybody agrees. Yes. Okay. Let's do this. And then, and then start having fun. I mean, yeah. Everybody knows, knows to drill. Uh, you know, you, you have to talk about it at some point in time. So, yeah. Yeah. I almost like both far ends of the spectrum where it's either like a royalty free sample and you can have fun with it or you're in the, the same room together and it's very clear who who did what and yeah. how much work was put in. And, you know, it's not this email chain, but you go in LA, New York, Nashville style, do it in a day, write a song in a day, get the most of it, work, most of that work done. And then uh, it's more pure and there's no questions about where it came from, but it's also harder and it can be nerve wracking, right? To be in a studio yeah. and be like, start with nothing. Um, I had uh, Pooh Bear came to my studio once who does a lot of Bieber's work and it's nerve wracking. Like this guy makes some incredible records with Skrillex, with Bieber. He's written for everybody and he comes in with a title list. Uh, So he starts with these little seeds, just titles. And he has such good flow and stream of consciousness that he can go through and hear the instrumental and be able to write that melody. does the mumble first, sings it out. But, um, you know, those are the pros, right? They come in and prepare. They used to have something to start with. Yeah. So at least you got to have yeah, a Yeah, but that's, that's, that's pro level. I mean, it's not every day you see that, right? Yeah. So the, the normal grind would be you make an instrumental track, you send it out, and then you wait to get pitched a vocal top line for that instrumental, which can take forever. Uh, so I usually prefer working the other way around, so receiving top line and then creating a track a track for it and you're getting the acapella solo or with the block piano chords uh, i don't care no doesn't matter 
It's it's definitely such a good fluid way. I mean, it's the fastest process. It's the fastest and most fulfilling way. I mean, it's really nice to have the vocal first and then create the music and see how everything fits together because you get used to the vocal very quickly. And then if you send out your instrumental, you get your vocal and you already waited like one or two months and then it's like, nah, it's not so good. Let's try a few other ones. And then it's six months down the line. And then your track might be less relevant. You get more insecure as producer for putting out the record. Uh, so yeah, right, you hear it too many times, and then you can't see the forest for the trees. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Do you have any tricks you do to kind of keep it fresh in your mind so that it's? I mean, you can't unlisten to a song, but you just take breaks. I take breaks sometimes. Um, because as a producer, you're always listening very differently than a consumer. So I try to sometimes try to listen to a track as a consumer. So I need to be doing something else at that moment. So I have like a ping pong table over here. So I might play some table tennis and then put the song on a loop and then listen to it like from consumer perspective. And then, uh, you know, see if it makes sense or not and then run back in the studio and change things or not. Yeah, it seems like you got to hear it in another room, you know, regardless of even listening to different speakers in yeah, my studio. another room and another mindset. And, right. and I think that's, for me at least, that's really hard because even when I'm in a club, I always listen to music like as a producer. So I need either to get really drunk to enjoy the music <laughs> that's being played or otherwise, you know, I'm always listening like with uh, technical, technically. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we better wrap things up. I got to roll out, but uh, this has been great, man. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it was and, fun. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. hopefully you enjoyed it. And uh, I was glad we got to kind of dig into the technical details and maybe we'll do it again for uh, book three, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> whatever, but, yeah. But thanks, man. I really appreciate it. All right, so there you have it. Incredible interview with Martin Vorwerk. Uh, we really got into the details there. That was really nice to kind of get into his mind and his approach and process to making music. Uh, into engineering tracks, making them sound loud, making them translate to the club and the festivals. These are really critical details to get into, and it's really important to make your music sound as best as it can be on the main stage. So hopefully you got some value from that. Um, I had a great conversation. Just a cool guy, very knowledgeable, one of the most knowledgeable people in dance music. So it was an honor to have him, and we'll be back next week for another episode. So see you then. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. Thank you.